Welcome to the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive, where you have access to all the amazing insights Dr. Finlayson Fife has shared through hundreds of interviews. I'm Mackenzie, Dr. Finlayson Fife's assistant, and we are so glad that you're here. Today's podcast episode was originally produced and published by the Faith Matters Podcast and is titled Belonging and Boundaries. A conversation with Jennifer Finlayson Fife. If you want to hear more from Dr. Finlayson Fife speaking on faith and spirituality, you can also follow the link in the show notes below to a recent YouTube video titled Navigating Faith Concerns. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Finlayson Fife, we are so excited to get to talk to you finally. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And welcome. Um, We felt like your perspective was really important in this conversation. We've been thinking about and talking about gathering again. And a couple of weeks ago, we asked listeners to submit questions and comments about just how they're feeling about going back to church. And most of the comments, especially the ones that seemed full of a little bit of anxiety, Mm. were about setting boundaries and about relationships. And so we just kept thinking about you and that um, this is kind of your wheelhouse. And we would love to just get to pick your brain and use your expertise to talk about how to sort of reorient with this new schedule. Um, And it made me think of something that I've heard you say before, that that all humans have two desires, to belong to ourselves and to belong to others. And I just kind of wondered if maybe this is the conflict that we're seeing, that maybe for the people who feel especially anxious about going back to church, maybe this year off was sort of an, it alleviated a lot of that conflict. And, yes. and I think that what they were expressing in every, in lots of different ways was just this trepidation that maybe re-engaging will mean that they're going to have to sacrifice this belonging to our, themselves again. Yes. So That's maybe cool. could you just start right there and talk about that? And are those things necessarily mutually exclusive? And uh, yeah, they're not mutually exclusive, but when we're younger in our development, they feel mutually exclusive. So that is to say, when we are more um, driven by the need to have others be happy with us, to be pleased with us, to have others feel okay about us, we can feel a lot more compromised in our ability to belong to ourselves. And so, you know, this is really the kind of central conflict of intimate relationships which is, you know, I just got a question on my Instagram yesterday about this, like, but if I know that my spouse wants something from me, doesn't that inherently mean I have less freedom, right? Because Mm -hmm. I was talking about how sexual desire is connected to a sense of freedom. And so she was saying, yeah, but in marriage, you can't have freedom (laughs) because, and in, you know, my response to that is the more that we can't handle knowing what someone wants and disappointing them, or being able to understand somebody may want something, but still be clear that we have a real choice. The more we have developed that capacity, the freer we feel, even in the face of other people wanting things from us different from what we want to offer. But if we can't handle displeasing, we will feel much more trapped by our relationships, even though we will still recognize that we need and want them usually. Yeah, do you you subscribe to some sort of framework of development? Or, you know, is this like something that you can map out on a spectrum that you're, you're, are you generally flowing toward more autonomy? Yeah, that's interesting. It's not quite the way I would say it, but um, you know, the, the approach that I read and think about a lot is differentiation theory, which was 
um, developed by Murray Bowen in thinking about kind of how people grow into deeper and deeper relational autonomy. That's not really his word, but that's the way that I think of it, which is this deeper ability as you develop to belong to yourself and be deeply connected to other people. So as you develop, you get able to reconcile that fundamental tension. Wow. Sometimes people misunderstand it that you start being like, I don't even care what anybody thinks. You know, it's a little more right. like, sometimes people misunderstand this idea that it's sort of the John Wayne view of, of relationships that you just don't care. And that's not it. You can care. In fact, your ability to care about others increases the more that you feel that you can belong to yourself. The ability to wow. enjoy church actually would go up the more you feel you can really be yourself at church and the more you feel you can say no to things that aren't right for you. If you don't feel that freedom, the more you may feel you need church, but still resent it at the same time. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you are in that place where you're, where you're, you're feeling like you're not free, you mm -hmm. know, then what, what do you do? Well, I think you have to understand the reason you don't feel free is because of your dependency on approval, your dependency on other people feeling good about you, your dependency on seeing yourself as a certain kind of person, you know, person who serves a lot or doesn't say no, or, mm -hmm. um, you know, who holds a certain kind of position in the church community or something. And so if you feel like you need that to feel that you are sufficient or the person you believe you should be in some sense, well, then the more you'll feel trapped by it. And so it's confronting that dependency that frees people up. You know, if, well, if I'm, am I going to church just to kind of prove to everybody I'm okay? Well, maybe that's not such a virtuous reason. You know, that's what Christ talks about. Your right hand knows what your left hand's doing. You're trying to kind of, you know, you're trying to have your appearance drive you. Now, I don't mean that everybody's just sitting around thinking superficially. It's, it's instinctive. That's how we start out in life is in this, we don't have a way to think about who we are, except to reference how other people feel about us. So from a developmental mm. perspective, nothing's going wrong and you don't really have a choice. But Christ was really modeling a much deeper integrity-based self-reference as a hallmark of development. That's what allowed Christ to say invalidating things to people that actually fostered and facilitated their development because he wasn't needing people to feel good about him in order for him to do what was good. So what oh. was good was more important than being seen as good. And so, you know, I'm not saying that everybody who's conflicted about going back to church is necessarily just too needy and right. need everybody to like them, <laughs> to be clear. But, if, but right. if you're struggling with the question of boundaries, that certainly can be a reason why we struggle with it because we're too dependent on others to manage our own sense of our own value. And so do you, I, I, I'm still just trying, this is something I've really, I, I felt like I really have had to work on a lot too. And I'm just wondering, you know, when the rubber meets the road, like, is this, is this just a matter of introspection and something that once you become aware of, you can, you, you start noticing it in yourself or is it matter, a matter of, of, you know, starting little and setting boundaries and saying no sometimes and feeling how that feels or like disappointing people and sort of being exposed to this idea that I can disappoint people and I'm still me. Like, how do you actually develop this yeah, I think it's, separation? It's, well, I think it's a combination of awareness and the cost of both seeing what you're doing why you're doing it and the cost 
to you for doing it uh, mm. or the cost to others for doing it. Because another way that people do this in relationships, you, you can yield to what everybody else wants from you. That's a kind of typical female form, but it, I just want to be clear. Yeah. Men do this too, but women can also do what I'm about to say. You either yield to what other people want or you pressure other people to be what you want. You know, it's like the mother who's pressuring her child to go on a mission because she needs to see herself as somebody who has succeeded in this way. And so you can also put lots of pressure on other people to reinforce a view of yourself that you need. So when you see what you're doing, because what happens is if you need other people to manage your sense of self, essentially you are using other people, mm -hmm. even if you're serving them. And so to see the cost to others or your relationship to others, but also the cost to your own dignity hurts a bit. And it's often what motivates people to say, you know, it's time for me to stop making other people's validation or pressuring other people to do what makes me comfortable. I need to stop doing it. It kind of goes against people's, right. you know, internal kind of moral compass. And so when they can see themselves doing it, it often gives them the motivation to tolerate the anxiety or uncertainty or invalidation of self-defining self-defining more deeply mm -hmm. uh, even if they're doing the same exact thing right it feels different you know, for yes. example at a, at a certain point in my life when I was younger I felt you know a lot of disillusionment when I was writing my dissertation I felt some real you know anger about things that had been taught to me in the church and I was really feeling like I had to go to church because I wanted other people's approval. Church people were my people. I wanted them to value me. And I felt like if I was honest about who I was, they wouldn't. And, and so that, that anger that I couldn't get the validation would make me go to church, but be unsettled the whole time. Yeah. And so I just be there like, you know, like feeling anything <laughs> but the spirit. Wow. And it wasn't until I gave myself full permission to go and really did stop going for a few weeks is all I lasted actually, <laughs> where, where I was like, okay, I really know I don't have to go. And wow. people will, the people that matter will love me enough, or at least I can tolerate that, that I realized I want to go. I want to be there. This is my group. This is my community. This is where I want to be. And it felt entirely different when I went back. So it's wow. like the things that were driving me crazy before were now just like, oh yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> yeah. yes. It was, you know, because I felt free now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, and I feel like wow. potentially setting a boundary or, you know, saying no to something before choosing, choosing to say yes to it can be particularly difficult in a, in a church setting just because we have this extra layer of sort of like divinity and inspiration that's that's attached mm -hmm. to it and so like mm -hmm. for instance when a bishop calls us to do something or you know mm -hmm. ministering assignments yeah. calling Absolutely. parties whatever it is you feel like it's not just the the, the institution yeah. or, or a neighbor asked asking me. Asking yeah this, exactly right? yes i think that's right and i i think but i think we lose track of the fact that um we really do have choices we have our own ability to see is this really right for me i remember um member of the bishop coming to my house one Sunday morning before church to extend a calling to me. And he said, oh, you know, um, are you willing and worthy to accept a calling from the Lord? And I said, worthy, yes. Willing, we'll have to see. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and he was sort of taken aback, but I really meant it. I'm like, you know, I'm not taking it as a given that this is right for me. I mean, I mm. certainly 
owe it to myself and my family to take seriously that question before I say yes to it. Mm. Because it has moral implications. And I think a lot of times we want the safety almost to just sort of lay it at someone else's feet. Well, the bishop said that the Lord wants me to do this or whatever. And I think that's almost an easier position than really thinking about what's the cost to my family? What's the cost to mm -hmm. me personally? What's the benefit of doing this? And so, um, and so I think that's really, it, it can be, I mean, the authoritative framework can offer some relief in a way, but I think it's not really the best in our theology because we do have a responsibility always for the implications of our, the moral implications of our choices, no matter who's extended those opportunities to us. I love what, that, yeah. What do you feel like, just, I guess, the very first step is for somebody that, like me, for example, that aspires to that type of maturity, but often doesn't display it. <laughs> you know, it's just like, what's the exposure, so to speak, that I can do to start to, to get used to that type of thinking? Well, that's an interesting question. I should think about that. Like, I mean, I, I think that, again, it's a little bit of waking up to what you're doing. When you're younger in your spiritual and relational development, you are authority-based. You are looking for a sense of safety. You're looking for a sense that here's the rules and this is what I need to do. It's a, certainly a good place to begin. Um, but it's not even in our own theology that place to end. You have to grow line upon line into a deeper capacity to understand what godliness is, what creates good, not just, you know, and you grow from a kind of safety frame to more of like a social referencing frame where you're looking to others to kind of know that you're okay and you're within the system in the proper way. But again, while there's real value in it and it's a stage you need to be in, you still have to say like, I, I maybe want too much for the idea that if I just go and do the things I'm being told to do, that will be good enough. That will make me safe. That will make me okay. Well, that's not really true because you still have to live in the consequences of your choices, whatever they are. And so you want to make sure that you made them from your clarity, from your sense of self-responsibility, not from some idea, well, I'll just do it and get a reward later. I think that's right. a kind of dangerous way of thinking, although it is a way of thinking that we begin in. Hmm. We, we spoke with Terrell Givens last week, I think I mentioned, and um, and he, so we were talking about the church is as true as the gospel, this essay from Eugene England, mm -hmm. and this idea that the actual institutional church can be as productive as good as the, as the tenets of the gospel. And mm -hmm. I, so this is super interesting because I can't imagine a better place for this to play out. You know, this, this like constant mm -hmm. yeah. opportunity to differentiate, yes. you know, and, and oh, it's true. Right. Well, not yeah. to mention that we get thrown in with people, at least in my ward, that are very different. <laughs> you know, we kind of yes. have the economic spe spectrum, the political spectrum. And where else are you going to be rubbing shoulders often with people that are quite different than you in the way they think, in the way that they live? And, mm -hmm. and so it does really give you this chance to really figure out how do you be good to the people around you who think very differently or, or who you think might be judging you at the same time mm -hmm. that they may need support from you. And so, yeah, how do you live in a Christ-like way? How do you sort out who you are in that context of those kinds of relational pressures, hierarchical pressures? I, yeah. I just don't think there's, 
a better place really to sort of think, what does it really mean to be Christian? What does it really mean to create goodness in a context where you're really interacting with people, making decisions amongst people that may think and function very differently than you do. And also in a context of being asked or even pressured to do things that you have to really determine who you're gonna be in the face of that. Oh, that is so true. And in, in the essay, it seems like it, he focuses Eugene England a little bit on people that, I don't know, in some ways you might look you might look down upon or that you really disagree with their views or whatever. But there's also this inverse side of it, I think, where there are people who just seem too good to be true, you know? And it's like, yes. you don't just aspire to be like them, but maybe you're actually feeling some feelings of jealousy, inadequacy, and constant comparison, et cetera. And I think for a lot of people, and we, we receive these in the questions too, but the, these sort of feelings, um, it's, it's difficult to go back to church because you're seeing all of that again. And when you, and when you were at home, you kind of, you're kind of free of that a little bit. Do you have, do you have any yes. advice? We often do this in church too, I think, because I think we like this idea that the most righteous people are living kind of a cut above the rest. And so mm. there's, it's an easy place to pretend I mean, you know, I can't say how many clients I've had that are sort of comparing themselves to the other couples mm -hmm. sitting in the pews. She's got the big rock on her finger. She's scratching his back the whole time. And, and I might even know that couple and be like, no, they're not, they're not doing well at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not, I don't say that, of course. But I just say, you know, that oftentimes we know how to craft an image and the complexity of our lives. A lot of times we don't share it because we feel broken that we have that complexity, right? Mm. Or we don't share it because we think I must be doing something wrong if we're confronting these difficulties. And so there can be a collusion in a kind of dishonesty, you know, coming up with the Sunday school answer, quote unquote, you know, like what, and, you know, one of the, and a lot of times people have said to me when they come to the workshops that I do, where there's just this kind of honesty that emerges, where people are really talking about what they're confronting in their lives, what's been difficult. And people will sometimes say, I wish Relief Society were like this. And I've said, go make Relief Society like this. Yes. Go be honest. Because a lot of times we're complicit in a dishonest place. And then that pressures others to only present in a certain way. But spirituality has so much to do with authenticity and honesty mm -hmm. and allowing ourselves to really be privy to our own humanity, to our shared humanity, to our shared flawed state. And in groups, there's often this strange and unspiritual pressure to pretend that we're above that human condition. Wow, that's so true. I remember hearing Brandy Paul once say, that he was talking about the spirit testifying of truth and how the spirit will also testify of our own truth. You know, when we are being so deeply honest and authentic, you feel, you the room will feel something. And I, I've noticed that ever since he said that, that they don't yeah. have to be bearing testimony. They can just be telling something deeply real for them. And you, and you feel the whole, the energy in the Absolutely. room change. And it's, it is electrifying. And I have been in relief societies like that, where people have been so authentic and so vulnerable and, and they have raised their hand with that kind of energy. And it is the most unifying spirit It's the most unifying feeling, but it's terrifying if that hasn't happened yet in the room, yes. you have to be the first one. Yes. It takes you know? some real courage to to make it a more honest experience. And, you know, in my own ward, there was sort of a pact of us, a group of us who just said, I'll be more honest if you'll be more honest. <laughs> and, really? That's yeah. Cool. 
And it really oh. made a difference. It really did. They just had more of a sense of genuine connection with one another, more people willing yeah. to talk about, I feel lonely sometimes. I really struggle. Mm -hmm. I come to church and I feel so isolated. And, and they weren't saying it to get attention or something. They were saying it out of this honest desire to sort of show who they were. And it just made a big difference in the feeling of the Relief Society itself, but just the church experience itself. Yes, I totally see that. One of the questions that came up a couple of times and has come up a few times since we asked for people to submit questions is, is just how do you decide when to be authentic and, and when to hold your tongue because it will be divisive? And mm -hmm. I think that is tricky because it seems like there's probably not a hard and fast rule and maybe it, it just depends so much, but do you have any, any sort of like guidelines? Because I, I think sometimes personally, you just, you have to say something because you feel like your soul is being yeah. crushed, you know, yeah, it feels like yeah. you've got to say something, but also there are there, I know that there are, are places where that would feel really divisive to yes. people and, and there are conversations that feel really, really touchy. And so, so how do you decide when, when it's worth speaking up or how, I think, or how or do you how speak up? Also, I think there's going to yeah. be about three different things. I think one is, I think you do have to think about is the greater good going to be served mm. by me saying something like it might bug me but is it really is it the time or place and I, I don't mean to say that it isn't it, it's just a real question like right you know is this the time or is this just something to let be mm. um, but I think when you do want to do feel you need to say something I think there's two ways I tend to think about it which is what is the thing that we all want in this room you know that there's oftentimes people are in a perspective and it's because they may want something um, they want, let's say, their children to stay chaste, for example, but they're thinking about it in a way that actually undermines what they want. Okay, like it, it might sort of appeal to them, like, you know, shame their child until their child stops <laughs> masturbating or something. But, but, yeah, <laughs> but it's not yes. going to ultimately get them what they want. And right. when you're sort of talking to people about what they want and what your experience would teach you about how to help people get what they want, well, I think they're quite open to it. I mean, mm. that is to say, when people see that something in their life isn't quite working, even if they may want to just sort of pound the pulpit on that point more, hoping that it will eventually work, when you can offer, you know, I've found that this hasn't worked for me, this is what I think works better, that I think keeps people at least open to what you're saying. I think the other element in that is to not say, this is how things are. So I think the other piece in it is not just sort of getting dogmatic and rigid yourself about this is how things are, mm. but speaking from your own experience. You know, for me, whenever we're sort of being intimate in our conversation, by intimate, I mean, I'm letting you see who I am. You're not bringing in your agenda. You're saying, my honest experience is that doesn't work for me or that I haven't had the experience that other people are having. That may be about me, but my experience is more like A, B, and C. And people can really hear that. You know, I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not invalidating your experience or even how you've put this together. I'm just giving, getting more honest information on the table, which is this is how I experience it. For me, okay. this is hard for these reasons. But people are really, really quite um, receptive to that kind of response, I think. And it's yeah. when you use the, that type of language that you're sort of bringing your own uncertainty to the table a little bit too, mm -hmm. like a yes. willingness to actually listen, you know, yes. to, to the core of what they're saying, you know, even if they didn't say it super elegantly. Yeah, you know, that's right. You're not, there, you're not a humility. There's a humility in it. You're saying, 
this is just my honest experience. I'm not pretending I have all the answers or that I see how everything works, but this is really how I've put it together. So I think that really keeps a kind of receptiveness in the conversation. Yeah, and that that is one of those uh, dimensions of gathering that feels especially productive of good, that when you when you can hear someone that you totally disagree with and, and just sense how honest and how much they're trying, I think that's magic. Like it, it, that doesn't happen in an echo chamber. Like if you're surrounding yourselves with people who, who just 100% agree with you and you keep validating each other like that, it's yeah. like a high, like it feels so good to just be that yeah. right. But that's there's right. something really amazing about being in the room with someone you don't understand, but who you can feel, you know, you can connect with yes. them heart to heart and not get it still, but like really feel love. Like I, right. I think that just feels like the most Christian connection. That's right. And it genuinely helps you be wiser. Like I talk about this a lot that, you know, Christ, the way I think about Christian theology is that love leads you into wisdom every time. Mm. One of the real dangerous things about the internet is you can get into your own echo chamber and it feels fantastic. And look at all those idiots over there that think about <laughs> right. things in such stupid ways, you know. And, and because we are such social learners instinctively, because we are borrowing wisdom all the time, we're looking to others to kind of help us know what's true, that if you can cull out some group, some pocket, and that just is where you currently think, it's quite dangerous to your own, it's dangerous to society, but it's dangerous wow. to your own thinking because it gets really compromised by limited information. When you're sitting in a church service and somebody that you know is speaking honestly and earnestly, but very differently, well, at least for me, it like pushes me to really think about like, how has that person put things together in their mind? Why is that true in their life? It just allows me to see things that I don't yet see, understand things I don't yet understand. And it's good for my ability to map how the world really works and what's wise and what's true. Wow, I love, I love that. that. Um, if we could maybe shift gears just a little bit. Sure. One of the questions that we got uh, very, uh, quite a few times was around uh, around the Sabbath. And we felt this too, that it felt much more like what we describe as a day of rest for the past, mm. for the past year than it ever has. Yeah. How do right. we, and, and I think a lot of us, uh, you know, really uh, just enjoyed that. And it felt, it, it felt true in a lot of ways. And so yes. how, do you have recommendations or thoughts on how we might maintain that while we, we necessarily, you know, for a lot of good reasons, enter back into a, a more, a more full scheduled gathering? Mm -hmm. Part of why the resting feels so good is because, well, first of all, we live in a society that where we're totally overworked and overstretched all the time. So COVID for some of us has been phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> others have suffered, but for some of us, it's been like, oh, wow, this has been great. Like just for me to not do all the traveling I do. And it just allowed me to do other things that were just better, you know, so just restful, I guess. So, um, and so I think sometimes it can feel really good to have that idea of rest because you know those connections still exist because you sort of anticipate that eventually you'll right. be going back to them. So you're kind of holding those in your mind rather than they just don't exist or here. I mean, so here's the paradox and I don't honestly have a good answer. I have to say, you know, so much of the reason why the church was so foundational in my early life and shaped me as much as it is was because we were doing so much for it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, we were like, and especially back when I was a kid, we'd go to church in the morning on Sunday, then we'd come home, you know, go back in the evening for sacrament meeting, have primary on Wednesdays, you know, <laughs> just like a lot of time at the church. 
And so it was so much what we were creating and investing in. So it had very high impact. And that has its upsides in terms of a real deep sense of belonging, a really deep sense of integrating the theology into your life. Of course, it also means that so much of your life gets devoted to this sort of outward process and that you know, Sundays were never a day of rest for me growing up. I mean, they weren't. My parents had leadership positions. They were just, there was a lot of busyness on that day. And, and um, I guess what I'm just trying to say is that's not all bad, but I can also understand the idea that when you never really have rest, you never really have that Sunday morning where you sleep in and you do yoga and you go on a hike with your kids and there's so much beauty and good in that. And, but there's also then this challenge of the loss of community and real involvement and belonging. And so, you know, one of the things that when I first opened my practice, it was about half members of the church and half non-members. And I wouldn't, and one of the things that was striking for me was that non-members had much less guilt about sex and sexuality. That just wasn't sort of their presenting really? concern, but they had much less of a sense of belonging, like being in a web of connection. They felt much more isolated, more alone in the world, more of a sense that kind of would anybody have their back if things went wrong. The members of the church, I think, felt much more like micromanaged and too many people looking over their shoulders and stuff like that. And, and a lot of sort of self-scrutiny and scrutiny within the community, but they definitely had this sense of being in this web of connection. And mm-hmm. so it's sort of like just in that spectrum of belonging to yourself versus belonging to others, there yeah. is this balance. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's easy in a context of just having a break to say, wow, this is the true way to be is Sunday mornings right. with no connection, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And it's but, still there, yeah. Because it's still there. Mm-hmm. That said, I do think you can really think about, does this serve me? Is there some different way for me to be in relationship to this in a way that it would serve me and my family better? What, you know, is there a lot of the way that we get people to do all the things they do for a church is out of this kind of guilting and this idea that God wants you to do it. And if you don't do it, things are going to go very badly for you. So there's a lot of that that drives a lot of people's decision-making, which I think makes it less healthy and harder on people spiritually, rather than coming into it from a place of perhaps a deeper sense of choice and, you know, wise choice. Like I, for example, I want to be involved in the community. I want to serve the people around me. I want mm-hmm. to know and be in connection with the people who are different than me or who may need more from me because it's part of being Christian. It's part of living in a, in a moral way in a society that's otherwise pretty, um, what's the word I want to say? Just living in their little pockets of mm-hmm. and too little connection, right? But is there a way for me to do this more deliberately, more thoughtfully, that I'm not compromising my mental health, not compromising good time and important time with my family? I think the church as a whole has moved more towards less time sitting in pews and less time, you know, with going from three-hour church to two-hour church to having more, you know, time in family communication and family conversation. Um, And so I think there is some opportunity 
to be more deliberate in thinking about what are the roles that I want to take on that I really think are wise for me, even if there's some fundamental sacrifice in it, you know, sacrifices, I'm choosing to do this thing that's hard because I ultimately believe it's good for me mm-hmm. or in line with the kind of person I want to be or sacrificing validation and saying, I'm going to do less of this, even though some people will think it's wrong for me to be doing less for me to say no to this. Mm-hmm. So the voice in my head is yeah. saying, but it's not all about you. It's not all about you. You know, like I, mm-hmm. I think we're really socialized to that, that selflessness is godliness, you know, that, that that's yes. good to not, to not need or, or want something that's, that's good. That, and like, absolutely. So, so can you talk about that from, you know, from the perspective of the gospel? Like, is, yeah. is it really about filling our cup or is it about serving? And so we, we sacrifice what we think we need and want because this is our, our duty. Well, yeah, exactly. My, you know, my art of desire course is hundred, like half the course is on this question. Because, oh, really? Really? Yes, it really is. Wow. Especially for women, there's so much of this idea that goodness is linked to desirelessness, selflessness, yes. forsaking of pleasure, forsaking of, and in that framing of femininity, there's just no room to receive sexual pleasure, you know, to receive pleasure wow. in your life, to feel kind of whole. On the other hand, to be somebody who's like, yeah, I don't care about anybody. I'm only doing what I want. You know, you, you can't, you don't have good relationships. You don't have the ability to kind of develop because so often development happens through sacrifice, right? Sacrifice mm-hmm. is the backbone of good relationships. Now, I don't mean this reflexive selflessness, reflexive self-denial. That's spiritually bankrupt, just as selfishness Mm. is spiritually bankrupt. The problem is in church, we put it in either you're selfless or you're selfish. Which one are you going to be, right? Okay. (laughs) If you say no to this, we know which camp you're in, you know? (laughs) Yes. Wow. And because it's too binary and simple-minded, we can feel ourselves kind of get trapped in that meaning. I think the, the sort of developmental step up is to say, you know, what, it, what do I believe is really right and important for me to do, even if it's inconvenient, even if it's wow. hard, even if it's a sacrifice of my time or other things that I want, because in my heart, I believe it's the right thing for me to do. I can feel that it's the right place for me to sacrifice. But that's not about, I need everybody to be happy with me. That's not the framing of, I need you to not think I'm a bad person and selfish or saying, no, that's coming from a place of your integrity. This is the kind of person I want to be. I want to be the person who shows up and cares about the person who thinks differently than me and that I'm aware of her and that I'm looking after her. And, you know, that's coming from integrity. It's inconvenient, right? But you're saying, this is what I believe is right. And the thing is, when you live according to what you genuinely believe is right, you also grow, you also live joyfully, right? If you go in this imbalance either way, selfish or selfless, you, it's spiritually bankrupt and, you, and it has a big cost. So mm-hmm. when I'm talking about that tension, you have to be true to both parts of it, right? Yeah. What's really, what, and, and integrity is what allows you to be true to both. What kind of mother do I need to be, to be, to be, to live up to my own expectations about who I should be. But that's not about, I need everybody to think I'm a phenomenal mother. That's coming from an integrity place. And that's about being true to yourself and others. 
Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I love that. Um, can I ask you a question that's sort of uh, personal for me, at least? Yeah. Um, sometimes it feels, I, I'm an, I, I, I would classify myself as an introvert. And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it feels like a little bit like the church is sort of by extrovert, by extroverts for extroverts. Yes, <laughs> it is. Um, yes. It's the, you know, the meetings and the, you know, hallway, Absolutely. all those hallway interactions and the activities and just, and everything. Yes. And it can be, it can be really, um, you know, that can be really exhausting for, for somebody that uh, yes. needs that, needs that time uh, alone. So yep. any, I, I'm curious how you, and you know, research has shown that roughly half of people are introverts. Mm. And so do you, do you have ideas for how uh, people who are introverts can sort of bring their gifts into, into a church like ours? That's a good question. You know, my husband's very introverted and, um, so I think he likes the idea of being at church much more than he likes actually being there. Because <laughs> I think it's a little bit stressful with those social interactions and the, you know, uh, where I really enjoy church because I'm much more extroverted, even though sometimes I like the idea of being there less than the actual experience of being there. So, so anyway, but, um, but it's a good question, this idea of your gifts. I mean... I guess what I would say is it's more, it's less about, you know, effusively talking in the hallway than it is about showing up honestly. Like that, that's where I think our church would grow and for our church meeting spaces to be more compelling for people is if there was a deeper sense of honesty there so that you don't have to necessarily say a lot, but what you say is earnest, it's honest, it's about who you are. Even to say in church, you know, I find church rather stressful, you know, but I do value the people here, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, just even that kind of a comment, other people would be like, oh my gosh, I'm not alone in feeling stressed out here. I'm not alone in feeling like that sometimes it feels sort of like it's all pretend. Um, so I don't have a great answer for that, but I think it's that people can sort of feel who you are and allowing there to be a divergence of people that are just there honestly and seeking what is good together, I think makes a home for more people. Mm. That is mm -hmm. such a good answer. That makes our friend Bill, who comes on the podcast every once in a while, talked about his um, what did he call it, Tim? Like his back row ministry or something. Yeah, back row and just, ministry, yeah. yeah. Just how like I think there's this idea when you're when you're very aware of what people think of you that you're front and center and like in the middle of everything. And I yeah. just think it's uh, it's such a powerful image to remember that you you know, your, your gift might be quietly, yes. you know, ministering talking to, to ministering one-on-one -on -one yes. with somebody in the back or outside or, you know, in the it's hallway. Absolutely and true. Absolutely. And I think that's very much like my husband too. It just sometimes is noticing the one quiet person or the, the conversation with one person that he has. And, you know, and that's, that's exactly it because, you know, it's often, there's just so many people there and it can look like everybody's doing so grand and yet there's so much suffering going on in any single church building. Mm. And are there people you can reach out to or honestly connect with in some way? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm curious. I mean, we've talked a little bit, of, a li a little bit about this, uh, de about developmental frameworks and sort of spectrums of, of maturity and how things change over the course of a, of a life. Um, the, I think it's fairly obvious in a lot of ways how the church benefits us it, when we're in that sort of first half of life there 
you know, there's so much structure, there are rules that can be good in a lot of ways, there's all the interactions with, with people. As, as someone enters more into that, that second half of life where they're emphasizing, where there's less emphasis on external authority, more emphasis on mm -hmm. internal authority, there's, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, you know, there's potentially stronger boundaries um, and there's uh, just a desire to um, maybe be a little bit more authentic in a lot of ways mm -hmm. to whoever, whoever you are. What, yeah. what, do you, what ways do you see that the church uh, actually helps us live that, that second half of life more, more fully? Well, I, I actually think our theology supports it in some ways better than the church supports it. I mean, mm. what, what I mean by that is I think because the church structure pulls so much for this sort of more social reinforcement and kind of like looking for other people, um, in some ways people are sort of looking to the church structure to manage their sense of self. And as they get older, they just need that much less. Our theology supports that beautifully. So that is to say this idea of progressing into deeper levels of godliness, deeper moral autonomy, like that you really come to know God more through living a moral life. You need less approval. You need less you know, external reinforcement for who you are. You are hopefully, if you've lived your life honestly, functioning within it with greater wisdom, greater compassion, greater ability to kind of metabolize suffering and recognize the suffering of others and be compassionate in the face of it. So if you've done that first half well, you are in a position to really be a wise presence in that church community, but maybe less dependent on the structure itself, but more in a position to give and be a matriarch or a patriarch in the best sense of that, mm -hmm. that you kind of have a kind of earned wisdom and solitude and compassion that's a product of a life well lived. Yes. And that. that's one of those things I think I really do appreciate about gathering that just like being in the presence of people who feel that way. Yeah. You know, absolutely. while we're trying to figure it out, like it's such a exactly. gift to be able to just engage with people who I wouldn't run into in regular social circles. That's right. I remember sitting in really study once and the lesson was about, you know, I don't know, parenting and all the angst and anxiety of young parents who are like, I don't know if I'm doing it right. And I'm probably not. And there's this older woman there. She said, you know, something that's just, I've seen to absolutely be true. And I'm not going to do it justice the way she said it, but she said, you know, you're, you're going to like plant that little oak sapling and you know, yeah, you're going to feed it and give it, you're going to do lots of things wrong, but that's just an oak tree and it's going to grow into an oak tree and wow. it's going to become that in its own right. And you have just only a little bit to do with it. And I can't remember how she wow. said it, but what she's basically saying is yeah. give yourself a break. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's going, it's its own form of godliness. Your child is, he's, he or she's going to emerge in their own right. And it's not all about you in a sense, but it was just coming from this experience of her own lived experience of raising five kids and and everyone was like, thank you for saying that. <laughs> but yeah, yes. just one of those moments. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I love the idea that this, you know, break, quote unquote, that we've had over the past year um, sort of does support that entering into, as you, I think you said it, deeper levels of, of godliness because they have, because it has made those, those, the choice that we have really start. You know, before yeah. mm -hmm. going to church for me was almost just a, 
you know, a rut that was impossible to escape from. It was just what, yeah. I, it was just what I did. <laughs> and now it's like, oh, I'm choosing, I'm choosing whether yeah. or not I go to mm-hmm. church. And that's a, that's a godly thing to do. Like you're saying that yeah. when we, when we acknowledge and embrace our own, our own agency and our own, uh, our own creativity, you know, yes. we are, we are embracing in our, in that way that our, our theology of development. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Are there, are there any gifts aside from, I think that's a really, really good one. Are there any other gifts you think that we can bring from this year of solitude into our communities as we start to regather? That's a good question. I mean, yeah, I think that sense of choice is really powerful. I think, I think it's maybe, as you say, you know, because falling into that rut of this is the way to do my spirituality. This has given us another yeah. picture of how to do one's spirituality. And so I think it allows us a deeper wisdom in making those choices. How, what do I want to call out for me, for my family, for us? What feels important in the community? Just going back into that question with a little more self-awareness, a little mm-hmm. more reflection, and just being more deliberate in how you balance that piece out and not waiting for other entities, other people, other pressures to dictate, but to really be a discerning chooser in the face of that. So yeah, it's just very easy to hand that over to other people Mm -hmm. and sort of have some fantasy that that means we're a little bit less responsible for it, but we always are ultimately responsible for what we choose for our lives. So you just wanna do that with the most moral courage that and that you can well thank you so much are there is there anything else that we missed that you want to mention before we go i think yeah i mean maybe just one other thought that i've been thinking about a little bit lately is you know sort of in this similar vein of being an active chooser is just that it's easy to kind of go to church thinking, you know, I'm supposed to be here. What's this lesson going to do for me? <laughs> kind of thing. It didn't do very much, you know, kind of in that like sort of, you know, <laughs> and, and thinking more about it as like, I'm an active participant in a community and how can I bring my gifts, my honesty, my earnestness to make it more into a community that, that serves our spiritual needs better. So can I also take the wisdom of this break and think about what is it that, who do I want to be in this? What do I want to offer? What do I want to create? Instead of just this reflexive, you know, I'm doing what I'm asked. What do I want to bring into this conversation? So I think the more we think like that as a church, the stronger we'll get. Absolutely. That's so, so good. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is, feels like such an important conversation. I just can't tell you how much we appreciate your thoughts. Thank Thank you. We really appreciate it. Really helpful. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in the show notes below to find her website, online courses she offers, information on upcoming events, and her free Facebook group.